This is the first Sunday in the season that we call Epiphany. The church year begins with Advent and then goes into Christmas, uh, then Epiphany. Next is Lent and Easter, and and you know the drill. For most churches, uh, in our part of the world anyway, January 6th is the beginning of the season of Epiphany. In other churches, uh, January 6th is Christmas. Different tradition, different time. It's a great celebration no matter whether you do it on the 6th or the 25th. And some of you probably have friends and family that celebrated Christmas yesterday. We find this word epiphany occasionally used outside of the church. We speak sometimes of someone having an epiphany. It, it, seems, it just simply means from the Cambridge Dictionary that an epiphany is a moment when you suddenly feel that you understand or become conscious of something that is very important to you. Uh, can we get that little quote up there? There we go. An epiphany is when you suddenly understand or become conscious of something that's important. The life of Jesus is important, and we focus on his life during epiphany. It's as if a light has come on in your head, and you begin to see things in a different light. That's what an epiphany does. You look at something important, and, you, and now things around you look different. In a season of epiphany, we focus on Jesus Christ as he's been revealed to the world, the The primary story that begins the season of Epiphany is usually the story of the three wise men who came. We're not sure where they came from, but somewhere around Iraq or Iran. And they came because it was revealed to them that that Jesus, the uh, king of Israel, had been born, the king of the Jews. But in this event, we recognize that Jesus has been revealed as the king of all people, not just the king of the Jews. Now, in our January newsletter, there's a a brief introduction to our sermons for the next five months. In each of our sermons, we want to focus our attention on Jesus and learn from him how better to follow him. The calendar helps us do this. The first half of the church year is basically focused on the life of Christ through all the readings. The second half of the year is more loosely focused on the life of the church. In the newsletter, we quoted an old gospel song that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's a song that keeps coming back. It's an encouraging song to some people. But our aim in this series is different from the sentiment expressed in that song. Our aim is that by looking at Jesus, we will begin to see our world more clearly, not dimly. It's his world, after all. He created it. He lived in it as we live in it, and he loved it so much that he wants to redeem it. Looking at Jesus, we see our world more clearly. Uh, I I forgot an asterisk there. Just punch it. There you go. (laughs) Even I forget things sometimes. Well, at my age, I forget them often. Anyway, we're going to begin. Let's go to Mark chapter 1, and we're going to look at Today our reading is is verses 4 to 11, but today we're going to start with verse 1 because we want to get a running start at Mark. I'm going to give you two different translations of Mark 1.1. First is from the New International Version, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Then there's the New Living Translation, which is our pew Bibles that you have in front of you. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It began, etc., Now, the reason I've given you these two translations uh, is that 
the NIV follows the Greek more closely. And in Greek, you organize not so much around logic, but around, you just put the most important words first. So beginning is the most important word in, for the writer, for Mark. In the beginning. In the beginning, there's good news. That's the second. And then Jesus. I, I want you to hold on to that because you're going to see why that's important in just a few minutes. By the way, the, the Old Testament reading for today is Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1. How does that start? In yeah, the beginning. So there's that connection. I want you to see that in Mark chapter 1, Mark is throwing down the gauntlet, as it were, in his very opening words. Now, what is a gauntlet? A gauntlet were the gloves that knights would wear. It's an archaic term. And, and when the knights would challenge someone to a duel or a fight, they would take off the gloves. They would throw down the gauntlet. This idea is alive and well in, of all places, hockey, right? We have a chap on our Winnipeg team by the name of Bufflin who has this inclination to throw down the gloves in almost every game with very little provocation. It's a way of challenging your opponent to a fight. Now, for those of you who follow the Jets, like Doug and others, can you imagine Bufflin leaving the bench, skating to the center of the rink, throwing off his gloves and challenging the entire other team to a fight before the puck has even been dropped. Well, if anybody would do it, it would be Bufflin. Nobody else would do it. That's not how you play hockey. It's also not the way you start a gospel, but that's precisely what Mark seems to be doing in this gospel. He's taking off the gloves, and he's challenging someone to a fight before the game has even started. But the question is, who is he challenging? The Roman Empire. He's challenging the entire Roman Empire to a fight. How so? Do you remember this man? Do you? Somebody's trying to say Caesar, I think. Caesar Augustus. And uh, we we were introduced to him back in November. He's the adopted son of Julius Caesar and was the first Roman emperor, the first true Roman emperor. We encounter him him in Luke chapter 2, the birth narrative. It came to pass in those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus, the whole world should be taxed, and, and that's the beginning of the birth story. Jesus was born when Caesar Augustus was emperor. About the time that Jesus was born, these words were applied to Caesar, the most divine Caesar. Oh, back up. Uh, we'll get to those. I'll give you the shorter verse. The most divine Caesar, the birthday of the God has been for the whole world the beginning of good news concerning him. Here's the full version. The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things, equal to creation, to use the Old Testament words. For when everything was falling and tending towards dissolution, he restored it. That's the Roman civil wars, of course. He restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. The birthday of the God, Augustus, has been for the whole world the beginning of good news concerning him. The Romans declared that Caesar was God. They declared he was divine and that he was good news for everyone. And every birthday of the Caesar, they celebrated the good news. Mark uses almost identical words 
to introduce to us Jesus the Messiah. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. He's throwing down the gloves. He's offering a completely different narrative to the Roman Empire. Caesar is not God. Caesar is not Savior. Caesar does not embody good news. The true God and Savior and only true good news is Jesus Christ the Messiah. That is the case that Mark is going to build in his gospel. In opposition to the entire Roman Empire. There is a God. There is a Savior. There is good news. And it's Jesus. He begins to build his case by referring to two prophetic messages. One by Malachi and the other by Isaiah. Now remember for a moment that it's been 350 years roughly since there was a recognized prophet in Israel speaking God's word. It's been 350 to 400 years of silence. Well, there's certainly been some false prophets popping up. There must have been. They were always prone to that. But the community, the Jewish community, did not recognize those false prophets as being true spokesmen for God. They, they somehow weighed their words and said, nope, They're not prophets. They're not speaking for God. 400 years of silence. Now, here's here's how Mark describes it. Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. Malachi says in Malachi 3.1, Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, verse 3, says, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. And, of course, the messenger was John the Baptist. Now, let's turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1 and and look at verses 4 to 6, the beginning of, of today's reading. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist for food He ate locusts and wild honey. Now, while the people had rejected for nearly 400 years all the false prophets, they were almost unanimous in recognizing that John the Baptist was the true prophet. They recognized that the prophet had come, and they recognized that he was the the prophet promised by Malachi, Isaiah, and others. They embraced John as a true prophet of God. Now, he was in the wilderness and preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. And loud, large crowds of people came. Now, Mark says, I'm not sure to what extent he was speaking with hyperbole, but he says, all of Judea, including all of Jerusalem, came to see John. There were huge crowds. Whether or not exactly everybody came, of course not. But they were enormous crowds. Now, while Mark leads with John the Baptist, we quickly see that his role is 
only that of preparing the way for the main character in the gospel. The coming of John is not good news. Well, it is in a way. But it's the coming of Jesus Christ that is truly the good news. And John prepares for this with baptism and his words. John doesn't introduce Jesus by name. He just simply refers to him as one greater than himself. Look at verse 7 and 8 in chapter 1. John announced, Someone is coming who is greater than I am, so much greater that I am not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with his spirit. It'd be idle speculation to try to figure out how much John knew. We don't know. But we do know what he was doing. He was preaching that people should turn away from their sin and be baptized as a sign of their intention to turn back to God so that they could experience forgiveness. He was challenging men and women to make a decision. There could be no standing still. They would either stay on the path that they were on or they would turn to a new path. They would continue to live as they had or they would turn to God. It's a decision that every person must make. Now, those who came out of curiosity had a choice to make. Repent and be baptized, or just stand there and watch the show and go back home to their old way of living. Many chose to confess their sins, to be baptized, and to be forgiven. This is all an introduction to the main event. Haven't even gotten there yet. The main event is the baptism of Jesus. Mark's description wastes no words. It's it's incredibly short and, and concise. Verses 9 to 11. One day, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. Just the facts. As Jesus came out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. That's why, by the way, the the psalm reading for today is what? 29, which speaks of what? The voice of God thunders over the water. And what do we have here? The voice of God speaking boldly, this is my son. Now our eyes are only on Jesus and John as we read this, and rightly so. They're the primary characters in the drama. But we dare not stop with just Jesus and John. We need to widen our view lest we miss a key part of Mark's story and his argument. Mark makes it clear that the response to John's preaching was dramatic. Everyone was coming to hear him and to be baptized. He must have been a very busy man. The line of people coming to John to be baptized must have been very long. I think we got a picture of that there, Tom. Yeah, there we are. It's not a great picture. It's not great art. But it's got a whole bunch of people coming and shows you how busy John is. It was a long line of people who knew that they were sinners. I mean, surely the majority of the people in that line were no worse than their neighbors. In some cases, they were probably better than their neighbors. Yet they knew that by God's standard, they were sinners, and they needed to turn their life around. And they were heeding John's call to turn their lives around and move toward God. They needed to be forgiven. 
Now we get to the picture that we need to see. Jesus comes and gets in line with those who were declaring their repentance by baptism. There's Jesus in the background back there. Coming to do what? To get into line with sinners. Now, if I were to rewrite this story, here's what I would write. John's there baptizing. Jesus comes along and stands next to John and says, Believe everything this man says. He knows what he's talking about, and I'm the Messiah, and and great things are going to happen. I would have written it that way. Mark doesn't write it the way. Jesus comes and gets in line with the sinners to be baptized. He took his place alongside sinners. One day, Jesus came from Nazareth, and John baptized him in the Jordan. So the question I want to ask this morning, I think there's another slide there, Tom. Yeah, closer up. What was Jesus doing standing in that line? Why didn't he just go stand next to John and say, okay, everything John has promised is happening? How can Jesus take the role of a lowly penitent and stand in line with sinners who are repenting and being baptized? Well, John had trouble with that question too. We're not the only ones. John had so much question problems with that that he he said to Jesus, according to Matthew, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. So why are you coming to me? That's in Matthew chapter 3, verse 14. John had trouble with it. Jesus standing in line with sinners was not what John expected to see. In his mind, the Christ would come as a judge. In, in Matthew's account, In Matthew's Gospel, we hear John say, Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. In John's mind, the Messiah would be an axe, and the sinners would be trees. And the Messiah would chop them down. But that's not what we see in Mark's Gospel. We see Jesus taking his place in line with other sinners and being baptized with that baptism of repentance. He was declaring by doing this that he had come to rescue sinners. Jesus made this very plain in other parts of the gospel, but especially in Mark 2, verse 17. He was criticized for hanging out with sinners. And when he heard this, Jesus told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Jesus came here to identify as a friend of sinners. And he came to provide them a way back to God. Now Mark has dropped the gloves for sure. Which of these two men is the beginning of good news for the human race? Is Caesar good news? He comes in power. Jesus comes in humility. I left out another asterisk, Tom. Thanks. <laughs> That's, that, that, these are on me. I, I, a little bit negligent in getting all the marks for the sound guys. Is Caesar good news? No, he comes in power. Jesus comes in humility. 
Now, let me ask you this question. When you go to Superstore, I hate Superstore. I'll just tell you that right up front. But when you go to Superstore and you're ready to check out, what do you look for? Shortest line. Amen, brother, whoever said that. Preach it. Shortest line. I hate waiting in line. Can you imagine Caesar ever waiting in line for anything? No, emperors don't do that. Can you, he, he sends a servant. Can you imagine the servant even waiting in line? No, servant just cuts to the front of the line and said, I'm picking this up for Caesar. I want it now. Jesus came as good news, and he demonstrated that by waiting in line with sinners. This much is obvious. Now, I'd like to wrap this up with three very short questions. First question is, how do we see ourselves? Are we those that came to the Jordan as curiosity seekers who just want to see a good show? Or do we see ourselves as sinners and recognize that we need to turn away from living for ourselves and we need to turn toward God and be made the people that he wants us to be? Jesus can only be good news for people who know they are sinners. If we forget that we're sinners, the good news doesn't have the same power in our lives. Second question, how do we see Jesus? Do we simply see him as God's son who is validated by the voice of God as he comes out of the water and the presence of the Holy Spirit who comes down like a dove? That's true. That's what happened. But is that only how we see him? Do we also see Jesus as a friend of sinners? That's how he's revealed in this story. And that's how he's revealed in the rest of the gospel stories. He was a friend of sinners when he invited Levi to become a disciple. Levi, who had been a tax collector, the lowest of the low among the sinners of Israel. They had a ranking of sinners. And the tax collectors, there's Levi, Jesus pointing to him and saying, You, Levi, follow me. And Levi said, Me? Me? Because he knew that in that culture he was the lowest rung of sinners possible. There weren't any sinners worse than the tax collectors. He was a friend of the woman who was supposedly caught in adultery and about to be stoned. He stooped and wrote something in the dirt. And then he invited those, we don't know what he wrote, but he he wrote something in the dirt and then he said, Oh, you without sin, throw the first stone. And those stones were thrown And the woman went home set free by Jesus. And finally, at the end of his earthly life, and this is the most profound story of them all, he was in the garden, and Judas the betrayer came to him and kissed him in the garden as an act of betrayal. And Jesus called Judas his friend. Matthew twenty six fifty. Jesus said, My friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. Jesus not a friend of sinners? So how do we see those around us who are sinners? Are we ready, like Jesus, to come alongside those who are sinners and befriend them? as Jesus did? Or do sinners make us a little nervous? 
a little worried. There's a song by a Christian group called Casting Crowns. I don't know much about the group at all. I know it was started by a youth pastor, and that's as far as my knowledge goes. I love the name of it, though, because the name is obviously taken from chapter 4 of Revelation, where the elders, the 24 elders, in awe of Jesus, the Lamb of God, as they worship him, they just throw off their crowns. That just does nothing. Jesus is everything. But I love, the, I love their name. Here's some lines from one of their songs. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, open our eyes to the world at the end of our pointing fingers. But we're good at pointing fingers at sinners, aren't we? The media is loving to do that right now with a bunch of Hollywood sinners, and, and they deserve it, but I think the media is having too much fun pointing fingers. Open our eyes to the world at the end of our pointing fingers. Let our hearts be led by mercy. Help us reach with open hearts and open doors. O Jesus, friend of sinners, break our hearts for what breaks yours. There are two reasons why we befriend sinners. Number one, we are sinners. Number two, our hope is that through our friendship, they might find the ultimate friend of sinners, Jesus, who is their Redeemer, their Savior, their good news. Let us pray. Jesus, friend of sinners, we thank you for befriending us in spite of our sin and for forgiving us. And we know that your heart is broken for the sin of all people. May our hearts be broken too by the sins of others that we might befriend them and be a channel of your good news. For we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.